My guest today is Deb Steinkamp. Deb says, I've been active in the contemplative Christian community ever since I first experienced a sense of God's constantly abiding presence with me. Dick Steinkamp and I have been married for 54 years. We love spending time with our three kids and six grandkids. We also enjoy travel, hiking, and kayaking. In all of that, and in my work as a spiritual director, I discover God's loving presence. Deb is a good friend and someone that I met through SoulStream, and it's just a pleasure and a joy to be able to visit with her. Now, please welcome Deb Steinkamp. Well, hi, everyone. My guest today is Deb Steinkamp. Deb and I have been friends for a long time, and it's always a joy to see her. I don't think we've met in person for quite a while. <laughs> That's true. It's been a long time, Rod. Yeah. Years. Because of COVID. And yes, we're in the same spiritual direction supervisory group. So we see each other there. But and that group used to meet in person, but we haven't gotten together for a long, for a long time. Long time. Not since COVID started. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been starting these times out with a moment of silence. So Deb, I invite you to join in and and people who are listening to join in with us as well. So let's let's just begin. Thank you. I, I'm finding these silent times at the beginning of these conversations interesting because, you know, I think your mind is sort of naturally racing. And how, how was it for you? What was surfacing for you? My mind was racing. <laughs> and then I said to myself, you know, maybe just relax. Mm, yeah. Just relax and pay attention to God's presence because that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've heard some of your story, and our first question is, what were some of your spiritual influences when you were growing up? Well, my family was a, a church-going family, we, but it was a very private faith that we had, mm. and particularly my parents. My dad, my dad had been a prisoner of war 
for, I, I believe, a fairly short time at the very beginning of the war in the Pacific. Right. And, and as a child, long before, before that, he had been, his father died and his mother put the children in an orphanage. So he had been abandoned. Mm. And when he, when he became a prisoner of war, it was because he was out in the jungle putting radio, the ship that he was a Navy guy and the ship that he was connected with had to get out of town in a hurry and they left him. Wow. <laughs> so my dad came with this, just this whole load of abandonment stuff. And he was just the most gentle, loving father. He was really a, he was a sweet father. And, but he didn't talk about his faith. We, I saw him every morning. I saw him sitting at the table with his Bible and his notebook. But I have no idea what he was reading, what he was making of it, what he was praying for. Now that I, now that I know about his past, though, I can imagine. But for a child growing up, when there was nothing talked about, it was all about just going to church. So that was a big influence. And when I was in my 20s, after I was married and had a child, I started going to Bible study fellowship. And that was a big influence because I really, I really learned what was in the Bible for myself. And I knew that it came with an agenda. I knew those lessons had an agenda. I, I was not shy about noticing that, but it served me well. And so I, and I continued, I did take a break in church during college and first, the first year or so that Dick and I were married. And then I went back. So I've been in church all my life since I was baptized in, I think, August of 1948 when I was less than six weeks old. I mean, that's a long time to be in church. Big influence. <laughs> so then you finally, finally took a break when you were like in your 20s or something. Yeah, I needed that break. Was that a time of sort of working through your own, like figuring out your own belief system kind of thing? Or what was the, what was the break about? <laughs> the break was just that I had left home okay. and I, I was... <laughs> This is a very long story. I won't tell the whole thing, but I was living with my aunt and uncle so I could go to school in California. My family at that time was living in Colorado. My boyfriend, now my husband, was going to school in California and we needed more time together. So I moved to California. He couldn't interrupt his college because of the draft. If he had gotten out of sequence, he would have been drafted instantly. So we kept him in sequence. And I went to school in California and we said, oh, this is nice being together. So we just got married <laughs> and he didn't go to church. And I thought, well, great, I'm not going to either. And it was not a, it, the only thing I discovered was that there were a few things I missed, like, but not much. I can't even remember what it was I missed. I'm going to throw a question in here, Deb. I haven't prepared you for this. So if, if, if you don't have an answer and you want to pass, go ahead. We can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading a book right now. It's actually by someone who lives in Bellingham. Oh. Called Church of the Wild. Is it Christina Luntz? Oh, I Victoria Luntz. Oh, I don't know her. It's made me want to ask the question is that, tell me about the land that raised you. What part of the country were you in when you, when you grew up? I was a, I was a gypsy. 
Oh yeah, you guys moved around quite a bit. We moved around a lot. Yeah, yeah. I lived. Oh, I've lived so many places. I can't. You don't. Your podcast isn't long enough for me to list them all. <laughs> I would say the most, the two most important landscapes for me mm-hmm. were the area around Gig Harbor, Washington, where my grandparents lived, mm-hmm. and and then Great Falls, Montana. That was when I was a child, and. Since then, we've Dick and I have moved also. So Kentucky and California and Washington. And now you're in Bellingham. What? How does that area? How does the area that you're living in now impact you? The, Victoria actually mentioned she has this kind of ongoing relationship with deer, and I know you have a lot of deer there. <laughs> but I know the people who live in Bellingham kind of have a love hate relationship. Did you see it on my face? <laughs> yeah, my <it's> eye. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but she mentions it too. Like she, she really has had, had a connection with deer, but her neighbor can't stand them because they're always eating her their flowers, right? So they eat all my blueberries just three days ago. Oh no! <laughs> yes, yeah. And when <laughs> yes, every many places we've lived, we've had deer. There are lots of things in Bellingham that I really do connect with. Outside, I mean, Dick and I hike and we walk almost every day, so we know. We know the terrain, we know the trees, we know what we know what it looks like when it's frozen and when it's dry and when it's soggy. We just we just love it. We just love the trees and the hills. interesting to notice the seasons like that like yeah and 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 sometimes to notice the difference i i you're probably i I was just down there so i noticed this too just we've had so much rain and everything's been so incredibly green and lush this year and the moss is like this thick on everything oh yeah 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 it's just it's great (laughs) yeah that's really neat that that you know the trees and you know (laughs) you know the terrain you kind of get to you kind of form a bit of a, in a way, you form a bit of a relationship with your surroundings, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we're, we're talking about contemplation today. That's sort of our main, that not sort of, that is our focus. Not very and good. I wonder what drew you to contemplation. Again, I, from knowing your story, I know you, whatever, you didn't mention the, the religion that you grew up in, but you started out very conservative. So I, I would imagine from knowing you, I think I've heard you say this too. There's been a progression or you, your, your faith has evolved. And so maybe yeah. you could just tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I've, been, I've been thinking about this so much. Somebody asked me to write about my life. So I've been doing that. And I'm, oh, yeah. it's, every time I look at where the beginning was, I have to push it back because I, I noticed something before that. But I'll just, I'm just going to pick a moment when it became obvious what was happening. Mm. So I was on a committee. I was part of the Evangelical Covenant Church of America at that time, which at that time was quite progressive. They were like the first really racially integrated Protestant denomination in the U.S. And things were, things were going really well in that group. And I was part of a committee that was called the Pastoral and Congregational Care Commission. And so... We would meet together and figure out how to keep good relationships between 
pastors and their congregations, which was a, you know, that was a fine thing to do. And there were two, there were two projects happening in that, on that committee. And I was on a group that was developing mediation skills training projects for programs for church congregations. And the other group was developing a program of, for spiritual direction for the pastors in the denomination. And at one of our meetings, my friend Helen read this meditation that she had written when she was on a 30-day silent retreat. So, and it was beautiful. And, and my, I, I just thought, I, I want to know that. I want to be able to, to write something like that, to have, have that kind of an awareness. And so I asked her, would she tell me about spiritual direction? And she said, sure. And it took us about, she, I lived near Santa Cruz and she lived in Berkeley. So that's a long, long drive. So it took us six months to get together. And when we did, she did not tell me about spiritual direction. She just started it. And I was hooked instantly. But it was her willingness to share her intimate experience of looking into a tide pool and noticing all the ways God was present in that moment to her that caught me. And you've probably had many, many experiences like that since. <laughs> many, many. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, more than I could list. That's neat that she was willing to to share that. How, how many how how many years ago was that? That was oh goodness. I started in spiritual direction in nineteen ninety-eight or nineteen ninety-nine. Okay. So quite a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. In talking to Sue Vanderwood and and to you, you've been doing spiritual direction for quite some time. I mean, it's, it, and it's, it, it's interesting because it's something that seems to just be gaining acceptance and, and growing a little bit at, at this time, along with the contemplative movement. But there are people who've been doing it for a while. Yeah. I, I finished training at the Mercy Center in, in Burlingame, California mm -hmm. in June of 2006. And I started seeing directees before I was supposed to. Sister Larita really gave it to me for that. And I said, I didn't go hunting for these people. They came to me. <laughs> and she said, okay, then. And she agreed to be my supervisor at that point, mm. which I desperately needed. Um, I needed supervision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can imagine how things could go wrong there. Yeah. So it's been a while. Yeah. It's been a while. You know, what's really cool is I think there is a bit of a theme developing in the people that I'm talking to is that there was, there seems to almost have been a time where there was a, a bit of a hook. Maybe they read something or they, or they had some sort of an experience that was unusual or someone shared something like the person that you heard <laughs> shared something. And I can, I can see, I can sense that what she shared, it really hit you in the heart somehow it wasn't just intellectual type of information it wasn't just information it landed in my heart it landed in your heart yeah yeah, yeah. and that created a spark for something a desire for something more yeah 
a thing that I learned the very first session of spiritual direction training, this was the, the hallmark of the Sisters of Mercy who were teaching us, was that God is always the initiator. Mm. Yeah. That there's always that hook, that mm-hmm. invitation. There's a great, there's a great prayer. Have a break with me. A great pair of prayer in a little book called The Prayers of Kierkegaard. Okay. And it's called Thou Who Hast First Loved Us. Can I take 20 seconds and read it? Absolutely. Go for it. Yeah. And it's in the old language. Remember, he was from he was from quite a while ago. Thou who hast first loved us, O God, alas, we speak of it in terms of history, as if thou hast only loved us first, but a single time, rather than without that without ceasing, thou hast loved us first many times and every day and our whole life through. When we wake up in the morning and turn our soul to thee, thou art the first, thou hast loved us first. If I rise at dawn and at the same second turn my soul toward thee in prayer, thou art there ahead of me, thou hast loved me first. When I withdraw from the distractions of the day and turn my soul and thought toward thee, thou art the the first and thus forever. And yet we always speak ungratefully as if thou hast loved us first only once. I found this soon after just a couple of years after I got on this road and I thought, boy, that says it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and isn't it a reminder that we continually need, like we, we forget. Yeah. We forget. Yeah. I like that line. It wasn't just as if it was one time, a one-time thing. And it, it, yeah. It's, it's, that's what we grew up with. God yeah. loved us first. Jesus died. Right. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> One, two, three. And then we believe and then it's all over. And that's it. Yeah. You're done. You're perfect. <laughs> you're done. Proceed. <laughs> <laughs> well, having you read something is a good segue into this next question. What are what are one or two of your favorite contemporary? Uh, well, Soren Kierkegaard, many of his prayers really have spoken to me through the years. And I don't know. in the book again. What was the book that you just read from? It's called The Prayers of Kierkegaard. Okay, great. And it's it was put together. Let's see. Can I see what this? Well, they wrote it in, in vertical. It's very hard for me to read. Perry Lefevre. Okay. Put that together. But, and I, and so there's so many, you know, yeah. there's so many we all, but really a special favorite of mine is Brian Doyle. Oh. I don't know that people would really consider him a mm. contemplative writer, mm. but he was a, a novelist and an essayist. He died just like a year or so ago. Catholic guy. He was so attentive. And he loved nature. And he loved people. And his everything that he has written that I have read has just been it's not like reading julian of norwich or anything where it's like intentional it's just in his life it just is permeating yeah is it kind of story does he kind of tell stories and just of what he's been aware of or what's been yeah yeah favorite of mine is called martin martin Mm -hmm. martin m-a-r-t-i-n m-a-r-t-e-n and it's about a martin the little animal Right. And and it's about a boy who needs a friend and befriends this little Martin, not in any kind of 
way where they, but he notices, the boy notices the Martin and the no, Martin notices the boy. And it's, it's just, it's kind of an adventure story. It's a family that lives in the woods and wonderful parents and nice people around them and elements of danger. And it's, that's just one. There's many, many Brian Doyle books. And also his prayer, his book, Uncommon Prayers. An Uncommon Prayer Book. That's the name. It's awesome. Yeah. Okay. What's something else, that, another author that's been impactful? Oh, there's so many. Oh, my goodness. Is there anything current, quite current? That I'm reading right now? Mm-hmm. I'm reading a book. I'm reading a book about the inter- internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Oh, yeah. That wouldn't really be contemplative. And yet, in a way, it is. Sure. That we can look at everything and wonder. <sighs> How would people have found God present with them in the midst of that? What are you finding? Are you finding anything like that? You know, surprisingly, I am. There's one one fellow, a Japanese guy, became a Quaker mm. and ended up actually in jail as a me alien. I mean, you know, that was what that was how he was classed. And he was an American he was a, an American citizen. And a loyal American and a Quaker. So you can find it everywhere. You and I have had a conversation before about your, you, you, sometimes you go out and protest. I haven't done that for a while. I haven't been in big crowds for the last couple of years. But I only bring it up because I wonder, I, I think over time, contemplation, I mean, and God, you know, and, and encountering God through contemplation changes us almost without realizing, realizing it. I'm wondering what sort of changes in your life have happened that you could probably attribute to contemplative practice. Yeah, I would say just about everything in my life changed. <laughs> really, really. Yeah. Um, because, of, because of my parents' experiences growing up, we were, we were, always, we were always vigilant to make sure that we were secure financially or physically or just safety was a was a real big deal in our family and it took me a long long time to relax about that and not fret about cash flow it helped it it helped that we had sufficient money but to to not fret about that and that was a that was a big thing that went away. I found kinds of internal freedom as a result of being attentive to God's presence that i that I never would have expected I could freedom to be vulnerable, freedom to take risks. It was once I was when I wanted to go to spiritual direction school we had a we had a crummy business at an airport for a while it was it was fun, but it didn't it wasn't a money maker. And I thought, well, I, I dare not spend this much money unless I'm earning some money. So I needed to find something to do. 
and I had some skills and I, I had some ideas. So I started thinking about having a little bookkeeping business. And then months after I sent out a few resumes, somebody called me and wanted me to come for an interview. So I went and talked to this guy and he offered me the job on the spot. And he told me he needed to know by Monday, and this was on Friday, would I take the job? <laughs> like, and I had, I had a few cl potential clients lined up on this other one. So I had these two things and I was, and I sat down, I was going to pray about it. And I, I already didn't believe that it was a good idea to tell God what to do, that we didn't really have any suggestions God needed. He already knew. So I'm sitting there and, and this question comes to me, well, what do you need? Do you need security or do you need freedom? What, whichever one you need, I'll take care of the rest. So I chose the bookkeeping job for freedom. <laughs> so you did work with him or it, you, you made the decision based on freedom? Oh. Yep, I didn't. And I, I took the job where I would have freedom. Okay. Freedom okay. to come. Oh, I didn't say that the, op, the job involved working in this little cubicle. <laughs> it was so tiny with like oh, a lava. And I, oh, I couldn't. <laughs> and I made just as much money in my freelance as, I, as that guy would have paid me. Yeah, probably with way fewer headaches, like way this, and pressure, right? And then, and, and like you say, the freedom. Yeah, yeah, lots of freedom. So that was a big lesson for me. Deb, do you have contemplative community? And if you do, what does it look like? I do. I have a fabulous contemplative community in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm part of the Soul Stream community with you, right? And we have our spiritual direction group, our supervision group, and that is definitely a contemplative community. Mm -hmm. And I have my friends at Still Point in Bellingham. I don't actually go to things there, but I know all the people. So, and, and I, have, I have friends who are contemplatives. And so whenever we're together, we're a contemplative community. I don't know why, but right now it's just such a learning or it seems so important to me right now to have community. I think actually I do remember why it's because we just had our partnership, our partner gathering for soul stream. And I just, I saw people there that were, they were living differently. Like they were living a, what I would call a contemplative lifestyle. And I thought, okay, this is great, but with everything else and all the other pressures of in society and you know, the pressure to live not that way, but to maybe live whatever label you want to put on it or whatever way you feel pressure to live a certain sort of way, be it a right wing, left wing, consumer, <laughs> consumer, whatever, is that in order to live, a, if we want to live a different sort of lifestyle that's maybe different than cult that than the one that is being presented to us in culture or the many different ones that are being presented to us in culture, that it's going to take some community. We're going to need, I, I just use the first person. I need friends. I need the support from friends and examples of people who are, who are doing it. So yeah. anyways, yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, I a hundred percent agree with that. And I was so sad that I didn't get to come to the gathering okay. this year. 
Oh, and it, to miss the car ride up with with the friends I was going to ride with. But yeah, the car ride's a big part of it, isn't it? That was, yeah, well, I, I when you're five hours from here, you bet it's a big thing. It's <laughs> in the car on a weekend. I yeah. experienced that this year too. The conversation there and back was was wonderful. It was a big yeah. part of the experience. Yeah. I will get together with those. I will get together with those friends before the end of the summer, though. So, speaking of learning edges, what's giving you life right now? Huh. There's there's a couple of a couple of great things over the last couple of years. Two young women have actually first one. I had I had known her in one one kind of a relationship, and then she came to me later and said, "You know what I really need is an older friend. I need." I need somebody who I can talk with. And, and I said, sure, I'm, I'm good with that. And so we started out. And then a couple of years later, that same friend called me and said, my friend needs somebody like you. Do you know anybody else like you <laughs> who would do this thing? And I said, well, let me talk to your friend. So I, I had a conversation on the phone with the friend. And I just loved her. And so I function as, as like second mother. And the, the, the first one's children call me Mimi, just like my grandchildren call me Mimi. And the second family, I'm almost, I'm almost shy to share this. The second family calls me St. Deb, <laughs> which I think is a hoot. <laughs> They don't call me that to my face. That would be too embarrassing. <laughs> wow, that's neat. But I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I also, I have a, I have a very young spirit. Like I can see you hanging out with young people quite comfortably. <laughs> I love it. And yeah. my, my grandchildren are all getting to be, well, the youngest is 13 and the oldest is 26. And so they, they keep me fresh. And that's another learning thing that's happened over the last little bit. My oldest grandchild is trans. And we learned that when she was 22. So, and I look back, I look back and I see all the ways from, from the early eighties that I had opportunities to encounter people in that alphabet list and to learn they were humans, and to learn that they were just like us. And so when, when, we, when we learned about our, our granddaughter, I could immediately say, I still, I still love you. You will always be my, my first grandchild. And there was no drama. And that was... That's been a huge, a huge learning over time. And it's, it's such a different, uh, there's such different concerns now that 
that we have to worry about safety and, you know, for this, this beloved child of our child. Yeah. But that's been a, that's been a big thing. And it, it caused me to leave the evangelical church, the evangelical covenant church, because they have hardened their stance against it. And I had to make that choice and it was an easy choice. I stayed as long as I thought I could be a, a force for inclusion. And when I saw that was an impossibility, I was gone. A whole nother subject. But it sounds <laughs> like <laughs> to stay sort of on the contemplative track, it sounds like life or God prepared you for, for that and for all along the way and yeah. prepared me to leave when it was time. Yeah. I was going to say it probably because you have this child and you have so many friends from that community or whatever, that it, it probably made it not, it, I'm sure it was hard, but it prepared you to, to leave and to what you, yes. To make that decision. Yeah. Yeah. And my take on contemplative living is if it, if all it is, is a practice of beautiful reading and being quiet and it doesn't lead to action. It's just another technique and it has no power. Yeah. But when the goal of contemplation is to be God's hands and feet and eyes and ears and mouth in the world, then, then then the specific practices take less, less important. Uh, they're important as background, but they're not the end. They're not right. the goal. Right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we, uh, this is just coming off the top of my head and it's something that I read recently. I mean, you think about Jesus going out into the desert. I mean, that was a preparation time and it was a very, it was spiritual warfare, but it was a very contemplative kind of thing to do. 40 days of silence and solitude and, <laughs> and the things. Well, that except for that one nasty visitor who yeah, kept exactly. challenging him. <laughs> right, right. But we go through that too in silence, like our, our, our demons or whatever speak to us for sure, or, or psychological challenges or whatever yeah. you want to call it. So yeah, I think contemplation prepares us to it, to be different in, in yeah. the world, to act and to, and to take action. Yeah. yeah. But we, and we need both. We need both for oh. sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, like you, you've probably been involved in injustice situations like me. And I've seen that, you know, you, you really need, you really need both. There's people that are so justice oriented, but don't have the contemplative part. Inevitably they, they burn out or they're not doing it from a place of love. And then you have people that maybe are way off in the in the contemplative wing of things, and and they're not really doing too much in the world, kind of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing I know about you, Deb, is you ask great questions because we're part of the supervisory group, and <laughs> a lot of times I'll just be sitting there waiting for the zinger from Deb because <laughs> I'm never aware of that. I always think they're going to ask this question. Is this going to be, you know, that's going to be too blunt. <laughs> <laughs> but let's put it let's put it positively and say you know how to ask good questions i'm learning i'm learning and so what's a question that you wish people would ask themselves more really it's it's the for me this question is is the whole basis of why we do spiritual direction and i and i think 
it's it's a question that was foundational in the beginning of the switch from me from how I was before I knew about this till after. And it's the question is, where are you seeing God's activity in your life? And what difference does it make? Yeah. Yeah, it's two questions. <laughs> two questions. So where are you seeing God's activity in your life? And what was the second part? What difference does it make? What difference does it make? Yeah. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. Mm. I, there was a question that I used to ask when I, I used to teach adult Sunday school all the time. This was before I knew anything about contemplative. It, it was when I was still living the way my parents had trained me to live, just private faith and don't talk about it and just do what, you know, do church stuff. So I, I started wondering as I was preparing lessons, I started thinking, boy, if we really believe this, how would, a, how would our lives change? What would be different? And, and now I wonder, now I know that really believing it means that you're actually seeing God's presence with you. Yeah. So we're going to go into a time where you lead us in a contemplative practice. Okay. And I'm just going to turn it over to you and, and let okay. you. And I have what, like 10 minutes or so. Yeah. Is that long I, enough? Yeah. I have to open up another page for a second. So I'm, I'm going to read a poem by Denise Levertov called to live in the mercy of God. And it, it's a, it's two stanzas and I'm going to read it twice with a pause in between the two readings. And for the, for the first time I read it, just listen. And on the second time when I read it, and I'll tell you this when I get to the second time, I'm going to pause between the stanzas. And and I'll tell you that when we get to that one. I'll just read the poem the first time. This is To Live in the Mercy of God. To lie back under the tallest, oldest trees. How far the stems rise, rise before ribs of shelter open. To live in the mercy of God. The complete sentence too adequate has no give. Awe, not comfort. Stone, elbows of stony wood beneath lenient moss bed, and awe suddenly passing beyond itself, becomes a form of comfort, becomes the steady air you glide on, stretched like the wings of flying foxes, to hear the multiple silence of trees, the rainy forest depths of their listening to float upheld as salt water would hold you once you dared. To live in the mercy of God, to feel vibrate the enraptured waterfall flinging itself unabating down and down 
to clenched fists of rock. Swiftness of plunge, hour after year after century, oh or ah, uninterrupted. Voice many-stranded. To breathe spray, the smoke of it. Arcs of steel-white foam, glissades of fugitive jade barely perceptible. Such passion, rage for joy. Thus, not mild, not temperate, God's love for the world. Vast flood of mercy flung on resistance. As I read this again, I'm going to pause between the stanzas. And during both stanzas, notice what catches your attention. And during the pause, notice what feeling remains in your body as the poem continues to echo. And at the end of the second reading, I'll have a longer pause to ponder for a moment or two how this poem has spoken to us today. To lie back under the tallest, oldest trees. How far the stems rise, rise before ribs of shelter open. To live in the mercy of God. The complete sentence, too adequate, has no give. Ah, not comfort. Stone, elbows of stony wood beneath lenient moss bed and awe suddenly passing beyond itself becomes a form of comfort, becomes the steady air you glide on, arms stretched like the wings of flying foxes. To hear the multiple silence of trees, the rainy forest depths of their listening, to float upheld as salt water would hold you once you dared. to live in the mercy of God, to feel vibrate the enraptured waterfall flinging itself unabating down and down to clench fists of rock, swiftness of plunge, hour after year after century, oh or ah, uninterrupted, voice many-stranded, to breathe the spray, the smoke of it, arcs of steel-white foam, glissades of fugitive jade barely perceptible. Such passion, rage or joy, thus not mild, not temperate, God's love for the world, 
vast flood of mercy flung on resistance. Amen. It made me think of my walk this morning. It was very peaceful out, but it's not, it's not always like that. You know, like sometimes the, Many times in the morning it is, it's quite quiet, quiet and still, but you know, there are storms that hit that inlet as well. Or, you know, lately there's been lots of bears in the area and that heightens the, <laughs> everybody's tension <laughs> or eagles will come down. And I was talking to someone about this the other day, eagles will come and invade the hair. We have a herons, a bunch of herons nests and it's, it's brutal, but they'll, they'll come and they'll take the babies away, you know, like, and snatch, so, snatch the fish right out of a heron's beak. Yeah, exactly. So there is this, we could equate that, couldn't we, to the wildness of, of God, of, of life. It's, it's not all just the times with the flowers and everything. I love them too, <laughs> but it's, it's just, it, the I feel like the poem at one point or was asking us to make it you can see both, right? You can reflect on, yeah. on both. Yeah. 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 What what my favorite what? my favorite line in that is the yeah. seeing the, the waterfall. And I always think, do you know Nooksack Falls? 
up at Mom Baker? Yeah, yeah. I yeah, yeah. left the side of the road and gone in there a little one yeah. yeah, yeah. And it just if you ever fell over that, that would be it. I mean, it's yeah. so powerful. Yeah. And I I remember being up there the first time and seeing it and the the final line of the poem vast flood of mercy flung down on resistance just popped into my mind and I thought that's it wow yeah. that's that's the that's the power of the mercy that is shared with us and the the idea of the when you would dare to float in salt water I didn't learn to swim till I was 50 mm. and so I mean well I I did, I could swim, but I didn't have any, you know, skill or trust. But the idea of floating in water, that, that we just, to float, you have to surrender. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. So I wish we could collect all the comments and Things that people found. I'll look for a way to ask people to comment. Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. on the hints of gladness Facebook group, they could they can make some comments. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll make some comments and I'll isn't that the best part of our openings at our supervision group when we yes. share our yes, exactly. When we go around thing. and yeah, and and how a, a different line, sometimes it's the same line, but most a lot of times it's a different something different about will will impact or hit people differently. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's fine either way. I think we're just all high achievers and we want to look like we're real special. <laughs> Try to come up with something new and different. But I love that. I love the line that you picked out. I'll have to, I, when I'm listening to this again, I'll, I'll listen for that as well. But I'll send you the poem. Okay. That would be great. I'll send it to you. Great. Good. Thanks so much, Deb, for joining me today. You are one of my favorite people and <laughs> it's always so nice to to spend some time with you well and i i return the favor rod i we <laughs> certainly do have a mutual admiration society <laughs> we do <laughs> i love it Thanks again for joining us on Hints of Gladness. For show notes and other resources, please visit hintsofgladness.com.